1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And while people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to come Excuse me, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and who admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is the word of the Lord. Through the springtime months, our young adults group carefully studied through First and Second Thessalonians. In fact, we looked at this very passage on May 17th, so they should hopefully be reasonably familiar with our text and reasonably familiar with why Paul's instruction to rejoice and pray and give thanks is such a profound instruction. But you know, to understand why the words are weighty, it will be helpful to understand the Thessalonian plight. So for the rest of us, in order to understand a little bit of backstory, even for passages that are relatively easy for us to understand, like rejoice and pray and give thanks, I do want to very briefly take us back into chapters 1 and 2, of 1 Thessalonians. In those chapters of Paul's epistle, he spells out a little bit of the Thessalonian experience. But just before we go back and look at that, let's pray. Father of all good gifts, make us a joyful church, a praying church, and a thankful church. In all situations, whether easy or difficult, Give us the wisdom of eternal perspective. Give us the holy wisdom that begins with the fear and knowledge of you by the power of your Holy Spirit, through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. 
Amen. So the Thessalonian church at this point was well worthy of Paul's praise. He has commended them for their love, he commends them for their patience, and he commends them for their hope in the Lord. The Thessalonians had become an example for believers in every place. Their solid reputation of faith had been spoken of far and wide. So well known were they that Paul had no reason to add his own comment to the inspirational stories being told about them. But the reason for this reputation was not just their faith, but their faith in the face of difficulty. In chapter 1 we read that they received the word through much affliction. And in chapter 2, Paul declares the gospel of God to them in the midst of much conflict. He says they suffered at the hands of their own people much the same way the apostles suffered at the hands of those in Judea. Paul says that those Jews had killed the Lord of glory and the prophets. The apostles were driven out by them, and they were opposed at nearly every turn. And Paul compares the experience of the apostles to the experience of the Thessalonians, and the comparison is made so that we can understand that the Thessalonian church endured the same types of persecutions, death, conflict, and opposition. And of course, he explains it so the Thessalonians will know that they are not alone in their trials. So it's not as though Paul was writing to a bunch of beach bums, soaking it up in some earthly paradise. And don't misunderstand me, there's certainly nothing inherently wrong with taking some time to soak it up in earthly paradises. But this was definitely not typical of the early church experience. But even so, in the middle of all of this difficulty, Paul offers them a certain hope for both their current experience and their future expectations. And looking at our passage for today, we see plainly that the future hope is the certain return of our King, Jesus. As a church spending these last few weeks in the beginning parts of Romans, we've been wrestling through God's judgment and wrath towards sin. And Paul certainly takes up that theme here in chapter 5 of our text with the sudden coming day of the Lord. But there is here a clear distinction of experience for those who belong to darkness and for those children of the day. You see, we children of the light view this future experience as a relief from our current tribulations and our momentary afflictions. But for those of the darkness who sleep with a false sense of peace and security, who get drunk not just on wine, even more on themselves, the day cometh like a thief in the night. For them he is the thief in the night, while for us it is the day of the Lord. We who labor in the light are not to be drunk on anything, but we are to be sober-minded. The sober-minded Christian is not drunk on themselves or anything else. We are not wooed by this present world and its false promises of paradise and peace. You see, our call is to put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Valuable instruction from Paul that, of course, is further fleshed out in his later letters to Corinth and Ephesus. You see, we must 
dress ourselves in this manner because God, and here's that good news, has not destined us for wrath. We are not destined for wrath. We may surely be destined for trials, for reproof, for painful sanctification, for the excruciating undoing of our sinful nature, and for every deed done in the dark to be humiliatingly brought to the light. But these experiences are brought to us in love, to mortify and to sanctify. And these moments of our wills being unbound from darkness and rebound to light can just stinking hurt. On the subject of these trials, C. H. Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, he knew very well hardship and trial. And he said it would be a very sharp and trying experience. For me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me, or that the bitter cup was never filled by His hand, or that my trials were never measured out by Him, nor sent to me by His arrangement of their weight and quantity. But may we see that our Heavenly Father filled the cup with loving tenderness, and holds it out and says, Drink, my child, bitter as it is, it is a love potion which is meant to do thee permanent good. And later he says, I do not know of any reflection, reflection, excuse me, more consoling than this, that my sorrow is not laid on me by a judge, nor inflicted on me as the result of divine anger, for there is not a drop of wrath in a river full of a believer's grief. Well, the Thessalonians certainly knew grief, but Paul assures them in verse 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this brings me to the three points of my sermon. Rejoice always. Pray always. Give thanks always. Through the Thessalonians' bitter affliction, Paul entreats them to rejoice always, rejoicing in the difficult and rejoicing in the easy. Of course, true rejoicing is not a happy facade when things are hard. Real joy is not being dishonest with others about our circumstances to make things seem better than they are. Joy is not a spotless social media pre presence while every real challenge is swept under that public rug. No, you see, real joy Real rejoicing comes from the holy perspective of having always put before our minds our standing before God in Christ. Joy is not so much an outward show, but an inward comfort believing that God's promises are true. But of course, when we believe it, it will show. It's easy to say that God is good all the time, while we soak it up on the beach. But it's true joy to say God is good amidst difficulty. We must learn to rejoice even when we don't want to. When our faith is put on trial by others, we must rejoice. When someone offers us a stinging rebuke, we must rejoice. When we experience health problems, job problems, 
school problems, preaching problems. We must rejoice. In these and other situations, our weaknesses are shown. But God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. So rejoice. And while the trial may be bitter, rejoicing always is a real way to keep well-oiled our good relationship with God through Christ. We must preach it to ourselves always that God is working these things for our good. Rejoicing always means praising God in all things. And we can be no better witness to those dying all around us when we praise God for all things easy and for all things hard. John Jewell, the Bishop of Salisbury, an English reformer who I have leaned on heavily for this weekend, he said, the, he said, the joy of the wicked shall have their end. They rejoice in their goods, in their wisdom, in their peace and worldly safety, in the multitude of their children or descent of their pedigree. But this joy is transitory, it fades and abideth not. They rejoice in their wickedness. Music and wine are in their feasts, but they regard not the work of the Lord. And he says, the joy of the righteous is everlasting. Their heart shall rejoice and no man shall take their joy from them. They comfort in this that their names are written in the book of life. Well, the Thessalonians received the gospel in much affliction, but they received it with the joy of the Holy Spirit. To rejoice is to be satisfied that the Lord in His wisdom has promised us not easy times, but to always carry us through all times to that eternal rest. Matthew Henry said, we would rejoice more if we prayed more. Prayer will help forward all lawful business and every good work. And verse 17 bids us to pray without ceasing. And surely there are many people who have given explanation as to why Paul doesn't mean exactly what he says here. Pray always. But indeed, we should always be with a prayer on our lips. For when our heart troubles you, do you go to your friend first, or do you go to God first? And when troubles arise, do you call the complaint line first? Do you send an email? Do you text someone? Or do you first lay your troubles at the feet of Jesus? Do you cast your cares upon Him, because He cares for you? You know, Bishop Jewell reminds us that it is part of the good Christian and the wise man to know himself and to know the nature of his flesh, for his flesh fights always against the Spirit, to know the waywardness and brokenness of our heart and the weakness and vanity of our mind. Many are so far from this, he says. They think all their ability is of themselves. They say, I have judgment, I have reason, I have sense, I have understanding and counsel and the ordering of my own way. 
Well, they know neither God nor themselves. But because we stand in need of God's continual help, the Apostle bids us to pray continually. Now listen. Don't feel as though you need to wax loquacious for every prayer. When Christ himself taught us how, he used simple praises, simple requests, and an honesty before the Lord. I mean, some prayers, of course, by necessity, will be long and laborious. But most will be short whispers confessing that we stand in need of the Lord's helping hand in all circumstances. Paul said to the Philippians, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It was Calvin who said, By prayer we disburden our anxieties. And it is no doubt that our lives are filled with mistakes and regret. But you will never regret stopping a moment to pray. Do you want peace? You must pray. Do you need to disburden your anxieties? You need to pray. And sometimes we can feel as though prayer itself is the burden. But this, I'm convinced, is the devil's lie, to keep us weighed down and unfruitful in the kingdom. Do not believe it. True, prayer is work, but it is not burdensome. It is the means by which the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds. Unburden your anxieties. Pray. We say it regularly in our ser services. Lord, teach us to pray, which of course is prayer itself. Side note, I have never prayed more in church than when I became an Anglican. Our services are continual prayer, but of course a bunch of prayers on Sunday, while wonderful, is still far short of the call. The call is to pray without ceasing. A, B, P, always be praying. And still we read in Philippians that we are to engage in prayer and petition with thanksgiving. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18 Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God. How can we be thankful in all circumstances except that we, like Spurgeon, take comfort in knowing that all our circumstances are governed by God for our good? Paul says it right there to the Philippians. Don't be anxious. Be thankful. And we can so often be very bad at this because it is so easy for us all to be riddled with little worries about little things and big worries about big things or even big worries about little things. But gratitude and thanksgiving is the way to peace and thankfulness is the way to the Father. We have heard in Romans 1 of the unrighteous who have suppressed the truth. Romans 1.21, Paul says, They knew God. They knew God. 
but they did not honor him as God. They did not give thanks to him. A lack of thankfulness is saying, you know better than God. Thankfulness says God is the supplier of every good gift. Thankfulness says God knows what I need. Thankfulness says God knows what I don't need. This weekend we should be thankful. We should be thankful for turkey dinners and potatoes. I am. <laughs> we should be thankful for power to work or to study. We should be thankful for a weekend to rest. But as we attend various feasts, we must be thankful for the true feast, which is Christ himself. We have food for earthly sustenance, and we have Christ for our present spiritual need. So come this morning to his table. Feast on him. Rejoice and be thankful. For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.